Church, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, as the kids are making their way to their classes, I would invite you to turn in them to John chapter 1. As we begin a new series today, celebrating and observing this Advent season. The word Advent means arrival. It means uh, the appearing. It's a season where historically the church observes and celebrates the arrival of Christ, the Lord Jesus. It's a season of waiting. It's a season of anticipation. As the saints of old awaited the arrival of the Messiah the first time, so we today await the arrival of the Messiah a second time. In his first advent, we know and celebrate that he came as a child. He came as a suffering servant to live as a man and to die in the place of sinners. But in his second advent, we know that he will come not as a child, but as a king, not as a suffering servant, but as a conquering warrior to rule and to reign with us forever. So this year, for our observance of Advent, we're going to be looking at the first 18 verses of the book of John. It's known as the prologue to John's gospel, these first 18 verses. And so this morning, we're going to focus primarily on the first three verses, but in order for us to get a fuller taste of that, I want us to read it in its context. And so we'll read verses 1 through 18. Follow along in your copy of the scriptures. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from the fullness, his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you so much for a season like this where we get to set aside time and consider the glorious miracle of you dividing time and space, the maker of all creation, to put on flesh and become a man and live as one of us and die in our place so that we might be reconciled back to you. So Father, I just pray that you would bless us as a church as we consider the arrival of your Son. Father, we pray that the the truths about the pre-incarnate Christ might elevate our celebrations and traditions of Christmas to a whole new level where our celebrations of Christmas might be even more Christ-honoring and God-exalting. May you do that in us and through us to glorify yourself. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are four truths about the Word that I want us to unpack from the first three verses of John's prologue. And these are four truths about the pre-incarnate Christ. We're going to talk in this series as we walk through these first 18 verses of John leading up to Christmas Eve. We're going to talk about the incarnation of God in Christ. We're going to talk about how the Word is the light of the world, how the Word brings new life, eternal life is found in Him, and how the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But this morning, we're going to look specifically at the pre-incarnate Christ that will tell us who He is and what He was like before He put on flesh and became a man. Before he was even a twinkle in his mother Mary's eye. Before he healed anyone. Before he went to the cross to pay the debt that we owe because of our sin. Before all of that, who was he? What was he like? And this is what we will unpack from the first three verses of John's Gospel. Four things, four truths that we'll learn about the pre-incarnate Christ. So this will be our outline for today. Number one, Jesus is the Word. Number two, the Word is eternal. Number three, the Word is God. And number four, the Word is the creator of all things. John's purpose in writing the gospel account. Here's John's purpose. He gives it to us in chapter 20, verse 31 of his gospel He says, but these things are written. He's talking about his gospel account. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the purpose of John's gospel is to explain to us who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and to do so in such a way that we might believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, we might receive the benefits of having believed that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Namely, that we might have life in his name. And these themes, all three of them. First, explaining who Jesus is. Secondly, uh, seeking to 
call his readers to respond in repentance and faith as to who Jesus is. And thirdly, that we might receive eternal life in his name and receive the benefits of knowing him as Lord. All three of these themes will be introduced to us in the prologue, in these first 18 verses. And then what John does in the rest of his gospels is he spends 21 chapters putting meat on the bones of that structure. And so as we walk through these handful of verses over the next four weeks, leading up to Christmas Eve, that Sunday morning, we should be careful to consider these truths that we've probably heard thousands of times, to consider them within the context of the entirety of John's gospel account, which again, the purpose of that gospel account is that we might believe in him as Christ. He says in chapter 20, verse 31, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So keep that purpose in the forefront of your mind as we unpack these truths about the pre-incarnate Christ. The first truth about the word that we have to come to grips with in this entire passage is that Jesus is the Word. He is the Word. The word that John uses for the word here is the Greek word logos. And the word logos literally means spoken word, speech. But as we read through this passage, we recognize that John is not simply referring to spoken word. He's not simply referring to speech. Neither is he simply referring to a book in the, as in the word of God. He's not simply referring to that. Because he presents this word as a person. He assigns this logos a personality. He, he says things. He, he does things. He's responsible for things. And he even has a pronoun. In verse 2, he talks about him as, he says, he was in the beginning. So he's, he assigns a personhood to this logos, and the person is Jesus. Now, as we continue through the prologue, it becomes even more apparently clear that he's referring to Jesus, especially when he gets to verse 14, and he says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this is no spoken word. This is not a reference just to the scriptures themselves. The word here is Jesus, who then becomes the obviously the main character of John's gospel account. But I think it's very interesting that John chooses the word logos to refer to Jesus here. And it's on purpose. And he's teaching us something about Jesus as he does so. And what this word logos tells us about Jesus is all about power and revelation. That Jesus is the power of God and Jesus is the revelation of God. For the Old Testament saints, the, the word of God, God's word was the source of God's power. We see this first in creation itself, in the act of creation. 
We know in the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, God speaks creation into existence. He uses his word to create. He says, let there be light, and there was light. He, he says, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and it was so. He, he said with his mouth, let there be dry land, and it was so. He said, let there be vegetation and plants, and it was so. He said, let the waters swarm with living things, and let the earth be filled with creeping things and beasts of the field, and it was so. God spoke his words, and they created. He creates and shows his power by creation. This is why the psalmist says in Psalm 33, verse 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. So the power of God in creation was exhibited, was made manifest for us by the words of an almighty and powerful God. But the Old Testament saints also saw that God's power was uh, the source of, uh, God's words were the source of his power not only in creation, but also in his acts of rescue, in his acts of deliverance and salvation of his people. The word is how God rescued his people and brought them to safety. This is why David writes in Psalm 107, verse 20, God, he sent out his word and healed them. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. He's referring there to the Exodus as God delivers his people out of slavery, out of the bonds of Egypt. As he delivers them and rescues them through the Red Sea, he does that by his words. He sent out his words and healed them and saved them from destruction. But God's word for the Old Testament saints wasn't just a, a manifestation of the power of God, but also about the revelation of God, God revealing himself to mankind. You know, God chose to reveal himself to us. God chose, he, he, he is completely autonomous from creation itself, but, but, but God chose to reveal who he is to us, and he did that through his words, by speaking to him. Moses said in Deuteronomy 5, verse 24, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. But the greatest, the most perfect, and the most complete revelation of who God is and what God is like is in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews says in the opening two verses of that book, long ago at many, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's how he spoke to us, by the prophets. But the writer of Hebrews says in verse two, but in these days, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Jesus is God revealed to you and I. He is God revealed to us, such that we look at him, we see 
the Father. And so in using the word logos to refer to Jesus here, John is telling us that Jesus is both the power of God and he is the revelation of God to us. Now we know that Jesus manifested the power of God in many ways during his earthly ministry. He healed the sick. He caused the lame to walk. He restored sight to the blind. He drove evil spirits out of demon-possessed. He even raised the dead back to life. He spoke to the winds and the waves, and they listened. He said, be still, and they did. He manifested the power of God in incredible ways. But his greatest display of the power of God is when he defeated sin and death forever at Calvary. His death had the power to save because his death, his death paid for every single sin of every single believer who has ever lived and will ever live. He also had the power to defeat death itself. And he proved as much when he himself rose from the grave three days later. Now sin and death, we know, have no power over us because the Logos, Jesus, had power over them. So in your celebration of the birth of Christ this year, when you look at the babe in the manger, When you look at the Christ child, remember that Jesus as the Logos is the very power of God and nothing, nothing is too difficult for him. Friend, he is more powerful than cancer. He is more powerful than your workplace. He is more powerful than than any government. He's more powerful than any political leader. He is more powerful than any military. And he is more powerful than any enemy you will ever face in this world. Now that doesn't mean that in his divine sovereignty, he's going to rid your life of all of these things that may be working against you. Because perhaps that may not be his will for your life, that you would be delivered from these things in this life. But friend, don't ever underestimate the power of the Logos of God, Jesus Christ, the Son. He is the power of God. His power defeated our greatest enemies forever, sin and death. And because of that, We can rest in the shadow of his wings no matter what enemies might come against us in this life. And in your celebration of the Christ child, remember also that this babe in the manger is also the perfect revelation of the God of the universe. Now we'll get into this more in just a moment, but but Paul put it this way in Colossians 1 verse 19. For in him, that is in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In other words, when you look into the face of Jesus, you're looking into the face of God. All the fullness of what it means to be God 
dwells in Jesus. And so if we want to know God, we turn and look into the face of Jesus, the Christ child. And we see who God is. Jesus, as the Logos of God, is the perfect representation, the perfect, complete revelation, revealing of who God is. The babe in the manger revealed our God to us in a way that nothing else could. He's the perfect revelation of God. Now this revelation of God, as we'll see in the ensuing verses, is fleshed out for us in the remaining truths that I want us to unpack from verses 1 through 3. That what it means for Jesus to be the perfect revelation of God. So the next truth that we learn about the Word is that the Word is eternal. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In the beginning of what? It's clear that what John is referring to is the very beginning of time and and space and material. The very beginning of anything. Verse 1 here begins the very same way your Bible begins. Genesis 1 verse 1 begins, in the beginning God. Here John says, in the beginning was the Word. It's no mistake. He knows what he's doing. He's saying that Jesus was there before anything else. In verse 3, we're going to look at that in just a few moments. John will tell us that the Word was, was there and active in the process of creation. But here he's talking about a time even before that. Before any of that, before anything else was, in that time, in that beginning, Jesus was, the Logos already was. See, Jesus is not a part of creation. We learn that when he came to earth, he was begotten, not made. As we'll see later in verse 14, he eventually comes to earth and he takes on human flesh but long before that ages before that before anything else was jesus was the logos was jesus himself says of himself as he's praying in the garden of gethsemane he's speaking to the father on our behalf he says to god and now father glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The unambiguous clarity there is that Jesus is eternal. The Word of God, the Logos of God is eternal. We celebrate the the birth of Jesus Christ at Christmas, but that was not His beginning You know, whenever we celebrate birthdays, uh, by God's providence, it's Hope's birthday today as they talked about the hope candle. But whenever we celebrate someone's birthday, we're celebrating their beginning. 
Actually, the beginning of them, we know, was in their mother's womb nine months prior. But, but when we celebrate their birthday, we're celebrating the beginning of their existence in the cosmos. My birthday was back in October. 57 years ago from October, plus nine months in utero, I began. Jesus was born 2,000 years ago. But even with nine months in utero in, in his mother Mary's womb, that wasn't his beginning. Because his beginning never was. Because in the beginning, he was. Jesus is eternal. And maybe that's just something for you that, that, that you need to begin to wrap your minds around and, and, and somehow make that part of your observance of this Advent season, that Jesus Christ, the child in the manger, is eternal. He has always been. Now, what is the significance of that for our lives? And specifically during this season, what difference does it make that Jesus was in the beginning? Well, that question is going to lead us to the next truth that we learn about the Word in this passage. And that is that the Word is God. Look again at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, this is going to cause us to wrestle with the very nature of Christ and the very nature of the doctrine of the Trinity. So put on your seatbelts. When John says that the Word was with God and then he says that the Word was God, how can those two statements be true at the same time? One might ask, aren't they mutually exclusive? When we say that he was with God, he can't also be God, can he? Well, yes, he can. And no, they are not mutually exclusive, quite simply because they are both true statements. And so what does John mean by them? Well, let's take the first one. The word was with God. The word, the, the logos, the, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the Christ, was with God. What is John trying to say by putting it that way? Well, he's telling us in one sense that the Christ, the Logos, has equality with God. That, that, that there's an equality there with God, but there's also a distinctiveness in his personhood. And friends, that distinctiveness of personhood goes to the very, is a very hallmark of the bedrock of the doctrine of the Trinity. That God the Father is a person of the Godhood distinct from God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. That God the Son is a person of the Godhood distinct from God the Father and God the Spirit. That, that God the Holy Spirit is a person of the Godhood distinct from God the Father and God the Son. Three persons of the Godhead, but one God of one essence. And so while John 
can rightly say that the Word was with God in that this second person of the Trinity was a distinct person in the Godhead, John can also rightly say that the Word was God. Although there are three distinct persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is only one God. As we read from the Shema earlier, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, I don't want us to get too bogged down by trying to wrap our mind around the nature of the Trinity because trying to do so will most definitely bog us down. The doctrine of the Trinity is one of those doctrines that is clearly asserted on the pages of Scripture. We, we, we don't see the word Trinity on the pages of Scripture, but we see the doctrine of the Trinity all throughout the pages of Scripture. It is asserted clearly in Scripture, and yet it is one of those doctrines that the more we talk about it, the more we try to explain it, the less we realize that we can begin to wrap our minds fully around it. I believe the doctrine of the Trinity with all of my soul, and yet I can say I do not fully comprehend the doctrine of the Trinity. My finite mind cannot fully wrap itself around how God can be one in essence and yet eternally coexist as three distinct and divine persons. But I see it on the pages of Scripture. And I believe it, though I cannot fully wrap my mind around it. This is why so many have tried to offer illustrations of the Trinity to try to allow a human finite mind to fully comprehend it. But all illustrations of the Trinity will eventually break down. One popular illustration of the Trinity is that of an egg. A chicken egg has three parts, right? It has a shell. It has the white of the egg. It has the yellow yolk on the inside. And yet it is altogether one egg. It's not three eggs. It's one egg. The three parts create a unified whole. But this illustration breaks down because our triune God cannot be divided into parts. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one in essence. As the same cannot be said about the shell of an egg, the white of an egg, and the yolk of an egg. Another similar illustration that's been offered is that of an apple. When you see an apple, you know that it has a skin on the exterior. It has the flesh of the apple, and it has the seeds on the inside. All comprise the apple, just as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all comprise God. But this illustration also breaks down along some very similar lines as the egg illustration. Namely, that the parts of the apple considered independently cannot be said to be an apple. We cannot say of the skin once it's been peeled from the apple, that's an apple. But when we take the independent persons of the Trinity independently, then we can say that they are still God. While the Father is not the Son or the Spirit 
he is still God. While the Son is not the Father or the Spirit, he is still God. While the Spirit is not the Father and is not the the Son, he is still God. But we can't say that about the independent parts of an apple. Let me offer one other common illustration of the Trinity, and that is the three different states of water. You might have heard this as well. That water can exist as a liquid, it can exist as a solid in, a, in, in an ice cube. It can exist um, in the form of gas as a water vapor. But no matter what physical state the water is in, its chemical compound doesn't change. It's still H2O. It, it's still water, even though it exists in three different states. But the problem with this illustration is that the only way for liquid to become solid is for it to freeze and change to become a solid in a cube of ice. And when it's a solid, it is no longer a liquid. The only way for water to become gas is for you to boil it. And if you've ever boiled a water, a a pot full of water down to nothing, you realize that, that once you finish boiling it and it's all become vapor, it's no longer water. It's no longer a liquid. It's water, but it's not liquid. It's water in a gas form. It's changed a state. Friends, the, the, the three persons of our triune God do not change states. They don't change from one mode to another. Liquid water can become a solid or a gas, but God the Father will never become God the Son or God the Spirit. The idea that God manifests himself in different modes or forms of the Trinity at different times and in different contexts is an ancient but still alive heresy called modalism. And it is a heresy. Any denial of the biblical doctrine of the Trinity is a heresy because it goes to the very nature of who God is and it goes to the very essence of what our Bible says. Now there's no perfect illustration of the Trinity. No matter how badly we might want one in order for us to wrap our minds around this doctrine. The best that we can do is simply affirm what the Bible teaches. That there is one God who eternally exists in three distinct and co-equal persons. We know that they are distinct because throughout the scriptures they interact with one another. They speak to one another. They talk about the other. They teach about the other persons of the Trinity. They have different roles throughout redemptive history. And there even seems to be somewhat of a hierarchy of authority within the Trinity. As the Father is the one who sends the Son, the Son is the one who obeys the Father and speaks only what the Father tells him to say. And the Spirit waits until the Son finishes his work before he comes and fills believers So the three persons of the Trinity are undeniably distinct, and yet they are one God. And so let's get back to our question that we asked about the eternal nature of the Lagos, the eternal nature of Jesus. Why is it important? Well, now we see that if Jesus is not eternal, then he is somehow less 
than God. But he's not less than God. Because as John says, the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is affirmed not just by the Apostle John in his prologue. It's affirmed all throughout the Scriptures. Listen to some of these affirmations. Listen to Jesus himself as he claims this same thing. In John chapter 14, Thomas said to him, Jesus, Jesus had said, I am, I am going to prepare a place for you. And where I'm going, you know the place where I'm going. Doubting Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus famously replies to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. But listen to what he says next. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Unequivocally, he's saying, when you look at me, you see God. Philip continues to converse with him in the very next verse. He says to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And perhaps somewhat in his humanity, struggling with patience, he says to Thomas or to Philip now, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Then he says this, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Philip, how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me. He's appealing not just to Philip, but to us. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Earlier in John chapter 8, Jesus is speaking with the Jews that were there in Jerusalem. And he said to them this, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jews don't like that. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, this is incredible, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This is Jesus. This is the one who walked the streets of Jerusalem. And he says, listen, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They thought, sought to stone Jesus because Jesus was clearly and unequivocally claiming to be God. Paul says in Colossians 1 verse 15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the perfect revelation of God as we said before because he is God. That's why he's the perfect revelation of God. Because he is God. Paul says four verses later in Colossians, Colossians 1:19, we quoted this earlier, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He reiterates this in chapter 2, verse 9. For in him, the whole 
fullness of deity dwells bodily. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 3 verse 1, He, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And of course, this very same John, who many years later would be exiled on the island of Patmos, would pen what he sees in a vision of heaven. In the book of Revelation, he will write that this Jesus is the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, that he is the lamb who sits on a white throne, who, who, who rides that white horse and, and wears a robe on whose thigh is written his name. And he gives his name. It is Lord of Lords, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. Jesus is not a God. He is God. The only God. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses will take their translation of the Bible, and they will turn to this very same verse, John 1, verse 1, and in their translation... It is their translation, the New World Translation. And in their version of John chapter 1, verse 1, it reads, And the Word was a God. Oh, what a difference that small little one-letter word makes in the meaning of the text. To them, Jesus is one of the gods, but he is somehow less than fully God himself. Church, the biblical witness is unambiguous. Jesus, the Christ child, the logos of God, is himself God. Or to put it succinctly, Jesus is Lord. And I think perhaps that is the the, the greatest takeaway for us during Advent. The the, the greatest possible way for us to, to... apply this in our celebration of Christmas, that that as we behold the babe in the manger, as we behold the Christ child, that we bow in humble worship before the King, because that's who He is. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is God. Is Is that how you worship? Is that how you celebrate Christmas in your family? Is that how you're planning to celebrate Christmas? Friend, in your celebration of Christmas, in your Christmas time traditions, how will, how will you apply the, the reality that this Christ child is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Because he is. The final truth that we need to unpack from these opening verses this morning comes from verse 3. And it tells us that the Word is creator of all things. The Word, the Logos, Jesus is creator of all things. Verse 3 reads, All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. This is an absolutely astounding statement. Not only was Jesus present at the outset of creation, he was the very agent through whom God created all things. Paul affirms this in his letter to the Colossians. In Colossians 1, verse 16, he writes, 
For by him, that is by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All things were created by the Logos, through the Logos, and for the Logos. He's the creator of all things. And when we say that, we're saying that he is both the means and the purpose of all things being created. He is the means by which they are created, which is incredible to consider. That when the Lord in Genesis 1-1 spoke creation into existence, let there be light, those words left his mouth, that was Jesus creating the cosmos. When he said, let there be earth, let there be plants, let there be fish in the sea and beasts on the earth, that was Jesus creating everything. He is the means by which God created all things and he is the purpose of all created things because they exist for him and for his glory. They exist for the glory of Christ. And one day he's going to come back and receive all that glory from us. And I love the way John puts this here. You know, he could have just said, uh, the word made the universe. And that would be true. Jesus did make the universe. But when we say it that way, what does our mind do? Our mind goes to the largest possible example of what the universe is. All of earth. All of our solar system, the entire Milky Way galaxy, everything that falls within the bounds of the Hubble telescope, all of that. He, he made the entire universe. Was Jesus the agent through whom God the Father created the expanse of the universe? Yes, absolutely. And our minds boggle at that. But I love how John puts this here. He says this in a way that brings to mind all of the little things of his creation that he created, that the Logos was involved in creating. He says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. From the expanse of our galaxy to the smallest insect, from the elephant to the ant. From the giant redwoods of California to the single blade of grass in your backyard. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And by the way, the way that John puts this also affirms and I think proves the divinity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not in the made category. He's in the maker category. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses will say, well, perhaps, but of course Jesus is part of all things, and so he's got to be made also. But then we have the second half of the verse. Without him was not anything made that was made. So nothing was made in the made category without Jesus. And so Jesus can't be in the made category of all things 
Because if he was, then he would be making himself, and you can't create yourself when you don't exist. Without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus wasn't made. He's the maker. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And friend, that includes you. That includes me. What an incredible concept. That the babe in the manger that we celebrate at Christmas made us. He made you. He made your son, your daughter. He made me. This is the Christ we celebrate. And I think it's important for us to note that this is how John chooses to begin his gospel account. Because in the remainder of this gospel account, he's going to talk about Jesus as a man. Of all the things that John could say about Jesus, he chooses to begin his gospel with, Jesus is eternal, Jesus is God, Jesus is creator. The rest of the book will be about Jesus as a man, because that's how John knew him. During his entire earthly ministry, John knew Jesus as a man. John laid his head on his shoulder at the Passover meal. John walked with him. He talked with him. John knew him as a man, but he starts his gospel account here. When he does so, he wants us to know right from the outset that Jesus is God, that he didn't begin at Bethlehem, that he always was because he's God. And he's creator. And he made you. And he wants his readers to keep that in mind as he goes on to tell them about Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry and Jesus' healing and Jesus' crucifixion and Jesus' resurrection. I think we too should seek to bear this in mind as we celebrate Christmas. The advent of Christ. The birth of Joseph and Mary's little boy. The child in the manger he is the king of kings and the lord of lords this child made you and i he created the world and everything in it this logos this jesus is god let us worship him as god and as we've said so many times here during the advent season we behold the manger against the backdrop of the cross Far be it from us to consider the uh, advent of Christ apart from and distinct from the gospel itself. Because church, the gospel of Jesus Christ is dependent on Jesus being God. We will talk about him becoming man, putting on flesh, and enduring what he had to endure as our representative as a man. But the gospel is not the gospel. It is not good news if he is not also God at the very same time. Only God becoming man, living as one of us, dying in our place on the cross, could save sinners like us from the judgment we deserve. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And so as you go home today, as you think about 
John chapter 1 this week. Ask yourself this question, who is Jesus to you? Is he just a man or is he God? If God has rescued you by bringing you to faith in his son Jesus Christ, then you know that he is Lord. And it's incumbent upon us to worship him as God during this season. So consider how you can do that. But if you've not come to faith in Jesus Christ, maybe he's just a man to you. Recognize and consider the implications that he is, in fact, God. Let's pray. God, we do pray for those among us in this room, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our community, in our neighborhoods, who are under the false impression that Jesus is just a man or that he's one of many gods. God, we ask that in your divine grace and sovereign wisdom that you would bring them to a full knowledge of the nature of your son, Jesus. That they would see him, yes, as a man, fully a man, but also fully God. And consider the implications that this God-man came to earth to die for sinners like us, like them. God, in giving them that good news, would you give them the faith to trust in this God-man, to trust in your son, Jesus Christ, and his finished work on the cross as their only hope to be rescued and restored and reconciled back to you. And God, may you so indwell us and so remind us of the divinity of your Son, Jesus the Christ, our Lord, that our celebration of Christmas looks different than it ever has been before. That in everything that we do, everything that we say, every present that we open, every light that we light, we exalt Christ as God. May you, Father, may your Son and may your Holy Spirit be glorified in our observance of this Advent season, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.